Hi, I'm Sheila Morris. Our reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear a child, shall bear you a child, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The word of the Lord. It's good to be back with you this morning. Um, as we're continuing to look at Genesis 17, I want to start with having us think about something. If you're of a certain age, you know this by heart. If you're not, you, this is news to you. There was an ice cream bar that actually had been around for about 100 years in the early 80s. It went public, went national, instead of just in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And their, their little kind of song that they would sing in their commercials would, it was, what would you do, ooh, ooh, for a Klondike bar, right? Um, and then they would interview people on the street. I mean, it was probably staged, but they would say, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Would you, you know, 
like act like a chicken? Would you, would you dance around like a monkey? Would you act like your dog? And no, they wouldn't, but as soon as they tasted a bite of the, the ice cream bar, they would do whatever to get a hold of that ice cream bar. What would you do for a Klondike bar? Now, most of us have also done something similar in our lives. We've made sacrifices to get certain things in our life. If you're a kid who really values sports, you'll find out if you really want to be good, you've got to sacrifice time, practice. Your parents will sacrifice money, time, their hearts in that. If you want to go to college, if you start aiming for college as a middle school, high school kid, you start to see that as something you have to pursue, you have to give up stuff for. What would you do to get into college? When I was in middle school, I was determined to go to the Naval Academy or West Point, and so I started to look at what was involved in going to a school like that. And it was sacrifice. It involved uh, athletics, which I didn't have. It involved leadership, which I was pursuing, and it involved academics. All those things had to be there, and then you needed to get senator letters and things like that. I never actually pursued any of it. About 11th grade, I felt the Lord calling me to something harder, different, ministry. It involved a whole other set of sacrifices and callings to follow. But we do this in our lives. We, we, we say, what would, it, what would you do for to become whatever it is you're after, right? In the covenant with Abraham up to this point, it has been God giving gifts to Abram and not really demanding much of him, not saying, hey, what are you going to do for me? Because God doesn't do that. What we get in the story of Genesis that we've been looking at especially over the past couple of weeks, is in Genesis 12, God calls Abram. Out of a whole, the whole earth, God calls Abram and says, I choose you, and through you, I'm going to work out my plan of salvation. I will give you a name, status, and honor. I will give you offspring, children. You will become a nation of people. I will give you a land, and through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Some years later in Genesis 15 that we looked at two weeks ago, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. He reaffirms all of those promises, a name, a blessing, offering, uh, uh, offspring, children, a nation, land, all those things are in there. But this time he does a covenant ceremony. We talked about it two weeks ago where God has Abraham take animal carcasses and split them in two and then a fire pot goes through them and it's God declaring in a theophany, it's God saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain, my end of the covenant, and not only that, may what happened to these animals happen to me if you, Abraham, or your offspring fail to uphold their end. And in Genesis 17, one last time, he renews the covenant again. And this time there's some obligation involved. And that obligation has some implications for Abraham. Abraham, what would you do for a covenant? Do a lot of things, God. Not sure what Sheila just read I want to do. Here's the context. In Genesis 17, Abraham is now 99 years old, so he's fairly old by any standards, right? It has been 24 years since God called him. God called him when he was 75, he told him all of these promises in Genesis 12 when he's 75. 13 years later, he has, or it's, it's been 24 years since that. It's also been 13 years since Ishmael was born. So last week, Richard talked about how they tried another way through Hagar the servant. She bore Ishmael. Ishmael's now 13 years old. 
And if we go back to look at these things, Genesis 15 and 16, it has been years and years since anything new has happened, since God has spoken to Abraham. And then he comes in and shows up again in Genesis 17. Let me reread this, verse 1 through 5. I think it's through 5. I can't remember if I added 5. When Abram was 99 years old, yeah, when he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant with, between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Right here at the beginning, God gives a name, a new name for himself. He declares it to Abram. He says, I am God Almighty. So when you did an ancient covenant, you could go look this up in suzerain covenants, ancient Near Eastern covenants from like the 800s to 1500 years BC. These ancient covenants have these written promises that two parties make, and they always start with identifying the parties. It'd be like, this is David, son of so-and-so, from the land of so-and-so, king over all Israel. And he's making a covenant with this other person. Well, God starts the covenant's preamble by saying, I am God Almighty. It's the Hebrew phrase, El Shaddai. El Shaddai, God Almighty. God, from the beginning, as he's reaffirming the covenant, is saying to Abraham, he's saying, I am the God who is able. I am Almighty. I am able to fulfill my promises even if you don't feel like I am. I can make the barren fertile. Trust me. And then he goes on to do something pretty radical. He renames Abram. Abram's name was Abram. It basically meant Ab. Ab was the word for father, Ab. Ram or Ram was the word for exalted. So his name meant exalted father. So Abram had lived his whole life, 99 years. He'd been Abram, the name that his father Haran had given him. Abram, an exalted father, a prince a king, and he was. He was wealthy. He was a prince. He was oversaw also a, a massive uh, household, even though he had no sons of his own. But then God changes his name from exalted father to Abraham. And that, that, fra- that word ham is kind of a derivation of the word haman, which meant a crowd or a multitude. So no longer are you exalted father. Now you are father of a crowd, father of a multitude. but he doesn't have a son of promise yet. How can he be a father of a multitude? The naming of a son was something in that ancient Near Eastern culture that was reserved for the father. It was the father who named the son. So Haran named Abram, Abram. God comes in and says, I am your father. I have always been your father. You must see me as the one through whom you get your identity. And he gives him a new name which was a bit of your identity, was built into your actual name. It was who you are. And God is saying, your true identity, Abraham, is the father of many. That may not be your experience, but that is the reality because I've declared it to be so. Abraham, Abraham now, is to accept and believe God's new name for him as if it was already his experience. 
father of many, father of multitudes, that's, that's who you are. Believe it as if it's already happened. In other words, Abraham's identity was not what his culture would have said. The son of Haran, though he was the son of a guy named Haran. Nor was it his status in the community, which was a wealthy prince. He was known amongst the nations around him, the people, groups around him, as a wealthy prince. That was his career, if you would. That's, that was true about him, but that was not his identity as God was looking at him. His identity was what God says about him, not his experience. We've talked about it here, of course, before, but in our modern culture, the way that we do identity, identity is who I am, who I think of myself as, how I view myself, my, my worth, where I get my identity from. And, and we actually just kind of, we intuit this, that my identity is mine to figure out. So I look inside me to figure it out, or I look around me, I compare myself to others. We do one of those two things. The current coming in generation goes to experiences and feelings. What do you feel you are? What's your experience with yourself? And now we know you can change your body or your name to match the inner you, right? That's kind of our cultural norm now. If you're my age or older, you think, that's, I would never have done that. I can't understand, I don't understand it, right? But we do something similar, at least my generation does. We, we don't necessarily look internally first, we look externally first. We look to our career and accomplishments to define us. My reputation, my resume, that's who I am. I am the sum of my accomplishments, my successes. How different would it be for us, for guys like me, if instead we look to God entirely for our identity and worth, not to our career or our accomplishments, nor even if you just kind of throw out career, things like my kids. That's what tells me who I am. If they're happy, I'm happy. Instead of looking to our kids, or our career, our accomplishments, if we simply trusted God to define us, trusted what God says about us more than what we think or feel or experience, I think if we actually did that, we would be completely free. We think we have freedom by doing whatever we want. There is a freedom in resting in the assured identity that God has promised us in his word. It would reshape our priorities for sure, what we sacrifice for, what we give ourselves to, what we value. But I bet we would have a hope that is not based on our successes or failures, not how people respond to us, not about our reputation, not built on a pride that we built up because of our accomplishments. We would rest in peace regardless of successes or failures. God calls Abram, Abraham to receive his identity not to discover it. Not to figure it out by looking at the culture around him and comparing himself to others, nor by looking inside and saying, what do you feel you are, Abram? He says, you are Abraham because I've declared you to be so. I want you to live as if the promises that I've made for you have already happened. That they are true. And not just you, Abraham, Sarah also. We see this in verses 15 and 16. 
He incorporates Sarah into this as well. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, she'll call her name Sarah, not Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her, the one who is barren. In other words, tell Sarah, Sarah's listening, Sarah, there is not another way. It's not Hagar, your servant. It is you, you, Sarah. I choose you. Trust me. Trust me. And even though you're 99, no, Abraham's 99, you're 89, trust me. You've been barren your whole life. Trust me. Live into the name that I have given you. You are Sarah. Live as if that's already true, that you have had children, that you are a princess of many. And Abraham responds in just some great, very real ways. Verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham, Abraham, after hearing this affirmation and this declaration about Sarah, fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. May he be the chosen one. Why can't Ishmael be the one? I love this description of Abraham's response to God's affirmation of Sarah and the coming of his son. He falls down. Okay, that's the right response. That's worship. That's belief. That's this is God Almighty. You better fall down before him. Then he laughs. <laughs> he doubts. He's wrestling with unbelief. God, how can this be? I'm like 100, she's like 90, and I'm not exaggerating. We are old. How can this be? Like, that's ridiculous. What, what are you talking about? I, don't, I, I can't believe this, God. But then he turns around and asks a question, very impudently talking to the king on his face while laughing at the king. He says, how about Ishmael? I love him. He could be your plan. What about him? This is indicating he has a relationship with God, an open enough relationship that he can ask an impudent question of God when he doesn't understand something. This whole scene is really messy. He's falling down in worship and belief. He's laughing in doubt and unbelief. And then he's boldly asking for something. Real faith is messy like that. Seasons of absolute trust followed by moments of doubt and asking for things that we shouldn't be asking for because God wants to deal with us in a relationship and relationships are messy, especially relationships with us. God says, that's okay. Come to me in that state. Don't think it all has to be perfectly bound up in always belief. That's very easy. It's not always easy. But trust me, God says. We read in verse 19, God's affirmation again, another affirmation. God said to Abraham, no, not Ishmael, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. You will laugh, but with joy. God's saying, Abraham, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Give yourself fully to me. Give your whole self to me. And Abraham's like, my whole self? Are we sure it has to be all of me? My whole body? God says, yes. 
signs. We need a sign with this covenant. So every covenant in that ancient world had signs and symbols that were built around it, right? We read this a couple weeks back, I think maybe in August, when we were in the story of Noah. God makes a covenant promise with Noah and with all the peoples of the earth, never again to bring the judgment on the whole earth to physically eliminate humanity. And the sign that he gives is the rainbow, the sign that reminds God of the covenant promises he has made. Commentators note that the covenant promise that God makes to the people of Israel through the Moses covenant, the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, involves the, pro, the, the sign of practicing the Sabbath, that this, this day of the week set aside, practicing the Sabbath would set them apart from other nations. In marriage, even to this day, we often give and receive a ring, a sign and symbol of the covenant of lifelong union between a man and a woman. But God has another sign in mind here. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 9, we read, I'm going to skip some verses here, but, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout the generations, they shall surely be circumcised, skipping down to verse 13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. So God is taking a sign that actually was practiced at times by other cultures like the Egyptians, but not until puberty. He's saying, Abraham, I want you and all males in your household to have a permanent mark on them, a scarring permanent branding mark on you. On one level, this is an identification marker, okay? This is as if to say that um, it, you could be branded if you were a servant or a slave to say whose master you, who, who you belong to, what household. And that's essentially one of the things that's going on here. Is God is saying to Abraham and all of his descendants, you belong to Yahweh. He is your Lord and your master. You serve him and him alone. It's also something that, unlike the rainbow, is very bloody. It involves cutting something off, a part of the body. And it was literally meant as a description of what would happen to a person if they rejected or broke the covenant with God. If they failed to be circumcised, they too would be cut off. So we can start with just this part of you, but if you want to be entirely cut off, that's your choice. If you do not do this, you too will be cut off. But why circumcision in particular? Well, of course, the main promise to Abraham had to do with offspring. On one level, that was offspring. He would have children and be a nation. But also through the original promise and one that comes a little bit later, 
offspring can be seen as a singular and it's seed or child, that there will be a child of promise through whom God will bring blessing and salvation to the entire earth. And what is God doing in this instant? He's calling Abraham to put a permanent mark on the very instrument of procreation. Think about that. I'm going to back us up here for just a second, okay? So, talking about circumcision, but we're going to now talk about something sort of different but tied to it. If you went back to um, July, we were talking a little bit about anthropology in Genesis 2. What does it mean to be human? And we talked about sexuality and gender and some of these things like that. One of the things that we talked about was God's original plan and creation. Why did God create? Does God create humanity because he's bored and he's like, well, let's try this? Is he lonely? Like, oh, gosh, I need somebody to play with and nobody's around. No. What we get from the theologians is this. God is in eternal union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity of persons, one God. God is in union of persons for all eternity, loving eternal union, completely happy in this eternal blissful dance of eternity. But the nature of that loving blissful dance is to share that loving bliss. It is the birthing of creation, if you would, that comes out of that eternal loving union. And what is born out of that is humanity, made in the image of God, male and female. We're made in the image of God, we're different, two persons, who are called to be brought together as one in a lifelong union, not eternal, in a lifelong union, in order to, out of love, birth new creation, a baby. And God wants to share and spread his loving union with all of creation, with image bearers all over the world. God's story, also another way we talked about it, is about a wedding. It begins in a wedding in Genesis 2 as God births creation out of his lifelong, not lifelong, his eternal union. He calls Adam and Eve in the garden to a lifelong union to be naked and unashamed to two becoming one in order to birth new creation. That's a wedding scene that happens in Genesis 2. The story of creation begins in a wedding and it also ends ends in a wedding. In Revelation 19 and 21, we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. In that case, it's not Adam and Eve brought together. In that case, it is Christ as the groom and the church as his bride. That means every one of us, whether we're guys or girls, are the bride of Christ. God is declaring from the very beginning, I want to marry you eternally. That sounds weird, but hear it. Let it sit. God desires union with you, eternal union with you. In Ephesians 5, we get this because Paul is talking about husbands and wives, but he overflows in one of those um, overflows of praise that he sometimes does when he's seeing things beyond what he can write as fast as he's thinking and experiencing it. And in verse 31 and 32 of Ephesians 5, as he's talking about husbands and wives, he references Genesis and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about marriage, right? And then he says, no, this mystery is profound and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Wait, I thought we were, I thought Genesis talked about Adam and Eve. Two becoming one, a husband and wife, having sex, if you would. And he's saying this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
This mystery is profound. This is a word that Paul uses, mystery. It has to do with God's plan being revealed. He uses it again and again as this phrase that means God's plan as it's being revealed in Christ. And what is God's plan for all of creation? Well, it's partly right there. And it's also summed up in, Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 1, at the beginning of this whole book that Paul writes, where he says in verse 9 and 10, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in time, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's making known to us the mystery. What is the mystery? To unite all things in him, to fill all things with him. God's plan is to fill you with him eternally, for you to be in eternal union with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the aim of creation, if you would. It's God's spousal love and intention for us. The purpose of life, the purpose of life, if you were to sum it up in terms of a command, we get this from Jesus, you know, summing up the commands. The command is love God and love others as God loves you, right? Some theologians talk about this as self-donation, giving yourself wholly to others. How does God love us? Self-donation. He totally and fully gives himself to us, and when we receive it, new life is born. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ... If anyone has Christ in him, he or she is new creation. A baby is born. New life in you. Looking forward to eternity. And then you and I in our lives are made to give ourselves totally to one another. And it's written in our bodies. And this is where sex comes in. Sex is sacramental. In this sense, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. There are only two sacraments in the church, but sacramental is something that reveals and points to God's plan, a sign. Sex is sacramental in that it is revealing God's plan from creation to eternal consummation. As a husband gives himself fully, physically, and in every other way to his wife, and she receives him in love, the possibility of new life is born. And in that sense, sex is a sacramental act. It is a covenant renewal ceremony every time, or it's meant to be. It's meant to be a sign pointing back to the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that births the original creation. It is meant to be, in your particular marriage, a renewal of the covenant commitments that you made at your wedding. And it's pointing forward to the ultimate marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's why there are great implications for circumcision. God's promise to Abraham was about an offspring, a seed, right? Genesis 22, 18, in your seed, in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. God is saying, consecrate, set apart the very instrument of procreation. As Bruce Waltke wrote, the organ of procreation is consecrated to God. To consecrate something is set apart for holy use, for worship and service to God. Think about that. Abraham, I want you to take that thing and set it apart for the Lord. And every man in your household is supposed to set that apart for the Lord. It is the Lord's. The sexual act is, is the Lord's. 
the hope of new life through that is the Lord's. It is not yours. It is an act of worship and service to God. And yet, and yet, it's pre-sexual here. It's on the eighth day that it is consecrated in the boys of the children of Israel. And in that sense, it has to do not just with your sexuality or even your body, but your whole life. It's saying from the very beginning of your life to the very end, not just your sexuality, but you, all of you, are to be committed to me. Regardless of whether you ever have sex or not, you are God's from the beginning of your life to the end. God is declaring that our bodies, our sexuality, our very souls and hearts and lives from beginning to end are not incidental. They are part of God's plan. God's plan through Abraham was not just to be through Abraham having a nation, an actual people. In verse 7, it says that God sets up an everlasting covenant. God's plan all along was to work through Abraham. And it wasn't just his, like, kind of like, what do I do now that the falls happened? Oh, gosh, I've got to come up with plan B. His plan A from the beginning was to work through a people to give birth to a son. In Genesis 3.15, right from the beginning, is he's declaring things on the the created order. God says, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The offspring of the woman, of Eve, will crush the serpent's head, looking ahead to one day a human being born in the same way that every human has been born, but this one will defeat Satan and sin and death. That's the gospel, right? Already there. In Christ, God came as a person with a body, the seed of Eve, the son of Abraham, an offspring of Abraham. And on the cross, on the cross, his blood was shed. His body was permanently scarred and marked. He was cut off. We all have broken the covenant. Christ, Christ was the one who was cut off in our place. And that's why in the new covenant, the gospel new covenant, we no longer have to practice physical circumcision. The signs of the new covenant in Christ are bread and wine and the water of baptism. It has to do with feasting and washing and new life. And there are no obligations except Give me everything. In fact, that's what Abraham is really told to do. God says to Abraham, be circumcised, which sounds, you know, if you're a 99-year-old guy, like, really? Now? But he says something more powerful than that. Walk before me and be blameless. To walk before, as Bruce Waltke said, is to orient one's entire life to his presence, promises, and demands. We believe, we believe that, that our wants and feelings, that my wants and feelings are number one. That's what matters, my wants and feelings. And that my body, my money, my family, my life is mine. God says they are mine. Give them to me. Consecrate your body, your sexuality, your children, your career, your life to me. 
That's what circumcision of the heart is about. It's not about cutting your body. It's about setting your whole heart, mind, will, soul, your desires before God and saying they are yours. God is asking Abraham and us, give it all to me and trust me, I am faithful. In the summary, or the postlude to this story, it's in Genesis chapter 22, 21. This is sometime later. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Let's pray. God, the gift that you have given us in Christ is new life. The hope of eternal union with you that begins even now as by faith we receive and are born a new creation. We live constantly pushing back against your call for us to consecrate our entire lives to you. Let us see what we need to lay before you, to cut off and give over to you, and give us the ability to walk in the identity and affirmation of the promises you have for us now and always. Amen. Take my life and make it mine, it shall be mine.